Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jonathan Safran Foer, whose latest novel is Here I Am. Earlier novels, Everything is Illuminated, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, nonfiction book, Eating Animals. But let's first talk about Here I Am. According to Wikipedia, you had been working on a novel called Escape from Children's Hospital. Now, if that's accurate, how did we go from there to Here I Am? Well, first of all, it's nice to be talking to you again. (laughs) I've spoken on a number of occasions, and I've always really enjoyed it, and I was looking forward to this. I was working on that in parallel. It It was not a a book either that became this book or a book that I put down. Um, I was working on the two of them at the same time, along with any number of other projects, but those are the two main ones. And at a certain point, this one just took over, captured my imagination to a greater extent is what I wanted to return to in the mornings. And I just decided that, you know, one of them was going to ultimately have to take precedence just to finish either of them. And was happy enough that this was it. How did these two books first originate? So Escape from Children's Hospital was a book that I always knew I was going to write. And in fact, I remember, God, what was it, 15 years ago? It was in 2001, 15 years ago, when I met with publishers about everything is illuminated. And they asked, you know, is there something you're working on now? Or can you imagine working on next? And I, I said, yeah, I'm going to write this book that was based on an event that happened to me when I was nine. I was in a summer school program, and there was an accident. It was a science class, and there was, uh, we were making sparklers, and they exploded. A number of kids were very, very badly injured. I wanted to write about that in the novel form. And I always meant to do it, and I never did it. Um, I ended up writing extremely loud. I ended up writing Eating Animals. I ended up you know, writing a tree of codes, I wrote a libretto, I did a, worked on a TV show, and all kinds of different things, and then I never returned to it for whatever reason, or never even started it. Then when I stopped working for this TV show, which we can maybe talk about later, that was about four years ago, I started working on both Escape from Children's Hospital and Here I Am. I got about 200 pages into each, let's say 150 pages. The path had to fork, and I um, chose Here I Am. It's about page 250. When the book veers from multiple points of view, I mean, they're still there, mostly into a single point of view, which is the character of Jacob. Is that around the time that started to happen? Did you always know it was going to move toward one individual? I didn't write the book in the order in which you're reading it, so I can't really talk about the process in that way. I knew that Jacob's sensibility, I mean, I guess the sensibility of the book is not really any characters. It's it's right. th- third person, and um, it strongly favors Jacob. And you're right that the focus moves, it moves m- more and more closely toward Jacob as the book goes, goes on. The sensibility that presides over it, and I think it has a fairly strong sensibility, isn't exactly his. 
maybe it's a little bit closer to mine, although it's it's not mine quite either. It's an average maybe of, of the different voices in the book. There's a certain kind of joke that the book makes that's not it's not quite a joke that any one of the characters would make, but it's the kind of joke the book itself would make. Well, let's talk about the book itself. It's essentially a family story about a marriage, three boys, and it veers between what's happening with them and I guess you call it the breakup of the marriage slowly but surely over the course of the book with a background involving a war in the Middle East, a fictional war in the Middle East. When you began, and you say you wrote, wrote out of sequence, that must mean that you had some kind of outline. You knew your, where you were going from beginning to end. No, I didn't. Um, really? I had certain touchstones. Like I knew from the beginning that there was going to be a cell phone that was discovered, which revealed an affair. And that I actually brought over from this TV show that I was working on. It's kind of an old dramatic moment. What was the TV show? I spent about three year, two years working. I created a TV show for HBO. Uh, no, it never was made. We It was cast. It was green-lighted is actually the correct way to say it. And um, maybe a month before it was going to shoot, I had a kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a little early for midlife crisis, a third life crisis, a third of my life crisis. And um, it was really when the process was shifting from writing, which I had done almost entirely on my own with some help from the, uh, Scott Rudin, the producer, into the production of a television show, which involves, you know, is very quite different than writing in a room. It is um, dozens and maybe even more people. Um, it becomes like a small business, and it takes on a physical reality, whereas the writing really was just inside of my head. And I just realized I didn't want to do that, that it wasn't going to be the right life for me. So I, I, I stopped. And how did they respond? I mean, were the scripts written, like 10 scripts? I had written seven, I think, and an outline for maybe the first two seasons. How did they respond? I mean, very much to their credit, H was a great place, and I worked with really nice, really smart people. And to their credit, they only want to make things that are overseen by the person who conceived of it. You know, they're not into, it's not like a film studio where shift material around, oh, okay, this guy's not going to do it, we'll get this guy to do it. So um, I think they understood my position. Like I, I, a lot of, most people I think they work with want to be showrunners. That's just their dream is to create a television show. And it really wasn't my dream. I got involved because Scott Rudin, the producer, had asked if I would be interested in trying to write something. It was in a time when I was, not working on anything that I cared about very much. I said, sure, why not? I'd always wanted to work with him. And it just took on a momentum that I think neither of us anticipated. Maybe even HBO didn't anticipate. But by the time we reached the point of, this breaking point of making it, I had to catch up to what was happening, you know, the process and the expectations. And I think we all maybe realized we we were working a bit out of order. Before we move away from the TV show, can you give a basic outline? What was it? It had certain similarities with the book. It took place in Washington, D.C. The hero was a rabbi, actually, who was a kind of fallen rabbi. He had quite explicit affairs, unlike the kind in this book. His wife discovered a cell phone. The inciting event of the show was like the inciting event of the book, 
where a wife discovers a cell phone with pornographic texts on it. So once you realized that the show wasn't happening, that moved into the book at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it wasn't like realizing that the show wasn't happening. It was, it was much more active than that. I made a decision that that was not the kind of life I wanted to live, which begged the question, what kind of life do you want to live? And really, it was the first time, despite having been a professional writer for, I guess, I don't know, 10 years at that point, 11 years, it was the first time I ever articulated to myself that I wanted to be a novelist. You know, I, I worked as hard on my first book as I did on this book or any other book that I've written, but my first two books felt they had a quality of, like, um, being accidental or not exactly the product of will or determination, but... And I, I now knowing a lot of writers, I've heard this from many, many people that the first book, first two books, they just kind of come, you know, they're just there. For me, that was very much the case. I mean, the first one, I remember watching the pages come out of the printer and just being wondering where the hell they came from. I didn't remember writing all of that. And the second book really rode a wave of kind of momentum from the experience of publishing that first book. I was, I had a different kind of energy then you know, in my life. Energy was irrepressible rather than something that has to be, like, generated mm. now. Again, it's not, it's not that they were easy. It's that they, they were something they didn't require that this book did require. Where exactly did Eating Animals and the work putting that book together, where did that come into the sequence of events? It was after Extremely Loud. I, I think I just wasn't ready to write another novel. That was before or after HBO? During HBO? No, before. Okay, that was all no, that, before. That experience was completed before HBO, okay. yeah. You began working on this. This all happened. You realized this wasn't something that you were going to do, and that was the end of it, and you f- began focusing on the two novels, which this one eventually took over. Yep, that's exactly right. It's the story of a family, but more than that, it's the story of a secular Jewish family, and in particular, Jonathan Safran Foer, your own ideas, thoughts, questions about what it means to be a secular Jew in the United States at this time. And it seems that has to be coming from you because it permeates the book. Well, there are a lot of voices in the book. You know, there are a lot of arguments in the book. There's a lot of perspectives in the book. People often, in, in the last month since the book has come out, have said to me, God, you wrote such a political book. I will say, well, what do you think the politics are? And they have a hard time answering that question. I think there's a lot of politics in the book, but um, I wasn't advancing any particular perspective in part because my experience has not been one of, it's not as simple as strong perspectives, but sort of navigating perspectives, my own shifting perspectives and like the chorus of voices that I've been surrounded by. And I wanted the book to reflect that, the kind of fullness of, you know, it's just an argument on every page, whether it's about the Middle East or about sexual politics or about natures of relationships or definitions of home or happiness. It seemed to me in reading Here I Am that the book is permeated with questions, not answers, but questions. The perspective on being a secular Jew in the U.S., both of us are, and trying to understand what it means in a larger context. For you, where did that arise? Was that always there? I don't know a Jew for whom it doesn't exist. 
I suppose there are some who would, I think, kind of disingenuously pretend that it has absolutely no bearing on their lives at all. But I don't believe them. You know, I'm not a religious person by any sort of traditional definition. I'm not a believer. I'm not observant. There are very, very few rituals that I have anything to do with, and a lot of them are kind of jerry-rigged anyway. But it is obviously not only an open question for me, that Jewish identity and what it, what it means, but a very alive question. And proof of that is the way that I write. You know, Before I wrote Everything is Illuminated, if somebody had asked me, are you somebody who wrestles with Jewish identity? I would have said no. It just wouldn't have occurred to me to describe myself that way. And if somebody had given, you know, read me the, let's say, the flap copy of that book, Everything's Illuminated, I don't know that it would have been a book I was interested in reading, much less one that I would suspect that I would write, but I did. By pretty much any definition, it was a Jewish book, a book that had a lot of Jewish content. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book, Here I Am, is as well. And there are a lot of things that surprise me in my writing because I tend to enter books without firm ideas. Auden said I look at what I write so that I can see what I think. And that's been my experience as well. And one of the things that I see that I think about a lot, which I wasn't really aware of in my sort of conscious, non-writing, more controlled life, is Judaism. The characters, in looking at your own biography, seeing this alternate universe biography, three boys, Sam, Max, and Benji, you were the middle of your three, which would make you Max in that sense. Uh, Sam has an accident, a fingers accident, which happened around the same time when you had your accident. So you were incorporating elements of your own life into the book. For you, Jonathan Safran Farr, how conscious is that? Do you look back and go, holy cow, I can't believe I did that? Or do you know when you're doing it? Both. You know, more often than knowing when I'm doing it, I know when I'm avoiding it, when I'm deliberately choosing not to write something in a way that would have come naturally because I don't want there to be too much overlap, really just to protect people. I've never written anything that anyone I know has recognized him or herself in. I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, writing one's life unless absolutely necessary, and I frankly can't think of why or when it would ever be necessary, I would prefer to protect people that I care about. Um, I don't want them to feel exposed. That said, there are overlaps with my life, and I am often surprised to find them. I often have them you know, pointed out to me, actually, by readers, not only overlaps in my life, but things that were like foreshadowed in previous books. Like Just earlier today, I was doing a reading, actually, and somebody was pointing out uses of the expression here I am in previous novels of mine. (laughs) Something I was just completely unaware of. The person said, is this something you've been thinking about, this idea, for a long time? Because it's here and here and here. So I can say no, but I can also agree with them that there would seem to be evidence that yes. That would mean that on some level, you know, you have two kids and there are three here. I would assume these three sons are probably a little bit closer to you and your brothers, but I don't know. The precociousness certainly is. I mean, your whole family is was precocious. We really weren't. Really? No, no. We were very, we were not particularly ambitious or intellectual or clever kids. We had a very 
classic DC upbringing. You know, we rode bikes around the neighborhood. We had summer jobs. We watched a lot of TV. We played Atari. We were not, you know, moving through the books on the shelf, and neither were we, you know, writing our own books. Though all three of you wound up being writers, the bar mitzvah, going through what it means to be in a bar mitzvah, were you? I was, yeah. I went to Hebrew school and I had a Jewish education that really ended with my bar mitzvah. Joined the club. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not a small club. Or rather, it's a big part of a small club. Yeah, I had, I, I was bar mitzvah, sure. Did you have any of the same thoughts or fears that Sam does that you remember? It's very hard to remember. I remember a kind of mix of utter disinterest, like Sam has, paired with a kind of awareness of different hypocrisies, and then some desire for it to mean something. Let's get into the backstory a little bit. Partway through the book, there's a major earthquake in Israel, and the background of Here I Am kind of changes, even though the foreground continues the story of the family. How did the idea of the earthquake come, and the decision to mainly keep it in the background except for certain small chapters was a conscious one. I don't remember exactly how the idea came, what put the word earthquake into my mind, and that's usually how ideas seem to originate with me, like a word will find its way into my mind, and then I will try to attach knowledge to that word or experience to that word. At some point, earthquake entered my mind, and I um, then found myself in Israel several months later and went to the Geophysical Institute and talked to the man who runs their earthquake preparedness program. And it just became more and more interesting to me, and it felt more useful in fiction. I always liked the idea of taking... So a lot about... uh, the, The book explores what is big and what is small and misunderstandings of what is big and what is small. And it's one of Jacob's obsessions and one of his sort of fatal or tragic flaws is his inability to properly scale things in his life or to know the proper scale, I should say. So I I always liked the idea of this massive global event being seen sort of in the background on TV screens, heard on the radio, occupying very little space in the book. I think in this 600-page book, it maybe occupies 30 pages or so, 35 pages. At one point, I had even wanted to call the book The Destruction of Israel because it felt like such a misdirection and um, while also playing at this like this theme of not knowing what is important in your life. But it would have been too much of a misdirection. Is that the reason why you chose in the entire book, even though he writes for a TV show, not to give us any idea of what the hell the TV show is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are a lot of central pieces, of seemingly central pieces of information we know almost nothing about, like the woman that he's had this exchange of right. um, sexual texts with. Um, you know, we get almost everybody's voice in the book, but she is a complete absence. The TV show he works on is a complete absence. The TV show that he is writing, which is his kind of reason for being at a certain point, is a complete absence, save for the sort of paraphernalia, you know, the show's paraphernalia, like this Bible in which he makes notes to actors in the show, but we never get to see the show itself. Also, Julia, his wife's entire career as a designer, same thing? Yeah, yeah. In addition to the problem of what is big and what is small, there's the question of what is here and what is elsewhere. 
and the characters spend an awful lot of time elsewhere. You know, Julia designs these houses, these sort of fantastical imagined houses where she can fantasize about living, even though she never will. Jacob writes this show, which he'll never share with anybody. Sam, the oldest son, spends as many of his waking hours as he's allowed to in um, this virtual world of other life. Each character sort of has a way of not of not being where their body is. And that includes his father, who might be a Henry Kissinger-type character, but we never know exactly what he does or how he does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe not Henry Kissinger, maybe a little more like Marty Peretz, but he's a blogger, a journalist of some kind. He's sort of xenophobic, sort of a caricature, but at times also it's as easy as it is difficult to dismiss him. Then the question arises, how conscious was this idea of misplacing large and small things in their lives, you know, getting it wrong, Jacob getting it wrong? Was that conscious throughout the whole book as you were writing it? I just don't even know what, it, what that means exactly, if it was conscious. I can tell you that I don't have ideas that I try to encode in fiction. You know? There is not a meaning more primary than the meaning than the book itself. I think it can be interesting and valuable and fruitful to search for meaning in a book. But it doesn't mean that the author had that meaning and then the book is some kind of once-removed expression. You know, the book is the book for me. When people ask me what, what the book is about, Obviously, I'm capable of giving an answer, but the feeling I really have is if I could have described it another way, that would have been the book. I wanted it to be as short as it possibly could. It just, in, order, in the, the most efficient form that this material could take was about 600 pages. I remember talking to someone who said to me, when people ask me what are the themes of my book, my response is, well, that's your job, not mine. My job is just to write it mm -hmm. as best I can. Well, there's that great old saying, a bird is not an ornithologist, you know, just because you are the thing doesn't mean that you are a student of the thing, that you can explain the thing, or even that you choose to be the thing. It gets confusing with books because, you know, books are the only art form that are written in the same language that they are talked about or understood or critiqued in. You know, people don't go to an art show and then um, review it with a painting. You know, you don't go to a concert and review it with a song. But we are now speaking in the same language that the book was written in. And so it can lead one to, to think that this, this kind of conversation has more in common with the process of writing than they actually do have in common. It's not quite, you know, a cigar is just a cigar. But on the other hand, on some level, you really have to shut off that idea that a cigar is any more than a cigar if you're going to write the damn book, I would think. It's not that a cigar, it's maybe an, an analogy that feels more right, is something like the difference between, let's say, playing a sport and then being an um, anatomist explaining you know, the physics of the sport, or a physicist. You know, one can like, shoot a basketball from 30 feet away without giving any thought to the physical mechanics that make that possible. But it doesn't mean then that when somebody explains the mechanics of it, that it's bullshit. Like, right. They're equally true. One does not infringe on the truth of the other. If Stephen Curry actually thought about those 45-yard bombs or whatever the hell he's doing, he probably would miss. I don't know. I mean, because on the other hand, you know, yes, there is an instinct to agree with that. On the other hand, 
like the science of sports has gotten like sport athletes have gotten better the more they've learned about the science of sports. So, Jonathan Safran Farr, I'd like to ask you about some other elements. Now we talked a little about the HBO show. What was it called, by the way? All talk. What is Tree of Codes? When I was looking it up, it turned out to only have a Belgian edition. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. I think it was maybe produced in Belgium. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's in English. I mean, it's only in English. It was, I took um, Bruno Schultz's Street of Crocodiles and removed many of the words. And what remains then is a different text altogether, telling a different story. And I, I literally physically removed them. The book has holes throughout it. You took this other book by, what was the name of the book? Street of Crocodiles by uh, Bruno Schultz. You removed words and created a different book. Would there illustrations do it then? No, no. It's a sh- you haven't seen it ever? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a shame. It. I wonder if they have one somewhere. It's the kind of book that's very hard to describe, but impossible yeah. to misunderstand when you see it. The physicality of it is very simple, but the explanation is very convoluted. And it became a ballet? What's that about? I didn't have anything to do with that. Wayne McGregor, the choreographer, worked with Olafur Eliasson, the visual artist, to make a, a ballet inspired by the book. And the film's that have been made. What is Love is Blind and Deaf? IMDb, it says it's a short. Does that exist? Oh, you know what that is? Oh, that's funny. That was, um, I, I have a friend, Edgar Karat. He's an Israeli writer. He was putting together some, I don't even remember how, some animations for short stories. And he asked me if I had anything. I said, you know, I don't really write short stories. And he pressed me on. I said, you know, I have this thing I once worked on. Let me see if I'll give it to you. And I gave it to him, and he animated it. And then he sent them to The New Yorker, hoping that they would put them on their website. And the fiction editor there saw it and said, hey, I really like that story. Maybe we could publish it as a story. But I guess the IMDb or whatever is referring to this short animation. Well, what you get when you get IMDb are sometimes peculiar things that people are going, well, what's that? I don't think it's peculiar, but there's a documentary of eating animals that you've worked on, and you're listed as a producer. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I'm sure it's true I'm listed, but I'm not sure I'm not <laughs> sure that I am one. I, have, I haven't had any involvement in it. I am friendly with the director, and I think he's wonderful, but he's, it's really his project from start to finish. So it's got nothing to do with you other than the fact that it's based on your book. Yeah, he ended up going back and interviewing a lot of the people that I interviewed, but on film, and seeing a lot of the things that I saw and capturing it on film. And I don't know how he's, stru- I haven't seen it. I think he's made a cut of it, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. I don't know how he's structuring it or even to what extent it's an argument. After Eating Animals came out, a couple of people I know, at least for a while, became vegetarians. Was that a, a reaction you, you saw? Oh, very much so. I mean, I, every reading I give, someone comes up to me and says, I'm a vegetarian because I read that book. You know, the book is not actually a case for vegetarianism, no, per se, but it's still really gratifying when I hear that. Are you still a vegetarian? I am, yeah. Can't imagine eating, eating meat anymore, I guess, after that. I can. Despite having written a case against factory farming, I'm in, in my sort of life, I'm not actually a proselytizer, and I'm also not somebody who sees the world of meat as black and white. I don't really approach it from an animal rights perspective as much as, you know, violence against animals is bad and should be reduced as much as possible, and environmental destruction is bad and should be reduced as much as possible, and the process that brings meat, you know, 99% of the animals that are killed in America 
are raised on factory farms, which is the worst thing we can do in terms of violence against animals or destruction against the environment. So we should reduce it as much as humanly possible. I am capable of reducing it in my own life to zero, but I don't judge somebody who isn't. I, I do judge, I suppose I judge people who are unwilling to recognize it as an important conversation. Well, at my end, all I know is I only buy free-range chickens now, and I only buy cage-free eggs. Mm. I don't think I'd ever looked before. I don't think I ever gave it any thought, and because of that book, now I do. I guess a lot of the changes that we've seen, you can now buy, even at Safeway, free-range chickens. You couldn't do that when your book was published. Oh, you can buy cage-free eggs in gas stations, literally. You know, what was once a kind of marginal concern is now so much in the mainstream that the question is no longer why would you want free-range chickens, cage-free chickens, but why wouldn't you? You know, there are more vegetarians on American college campuses now than Catholics. It used to be the case that more people were vegetarians than would admit to it. Now there are more people who admit to it than are because it's an aspirational identity and it's shifted entirely into the mainstream and I think we will reach a tipping point where we're right on the verge of a tipping point where um, the whole conversation is going to be reframed not into, you know, why don't you eat meat, but why do you? You must have made a conscious choice then to keep that completely out of here I am. It didn't have a place in it. Everybody talks about politics and things like that and it never just comes, it never comes up. Well, in fact, they eat meat. I mean, they refer to eating meat in a couple different places. It would have been a distraction. It would have been, I would have felt like I was inserting myself too much. It would have felt cute. There's a lot about middle-aged angst in the book as you're going to turn 40, your character's 42. Were you going through any of that, I mean, as that came up? You know, I'm not even sure I'm the best person to answer that question. Yes, I could tell you that no, I wasn't, but I, even I would find that hard to believe um, <laughs> as an answer. I assume a lot of my sort of fears and anxieties were expressed in the book. Yeah, I don't want to get into your personal life too much here, but I know that there's been, you know, your relationship situation has shifted. The relationship situation in the book shifted. I know just when I've tried writing, nothing's ever been published there. What I found happening was that sometimes there was a bleed, not from real life into fiction, but from fiction into real life. Does that make sense? It does. I don't think that that happened. I don't think there was bleeding in too much in either direction. Um, I did get divorced. The character in the characters in the book get divorced. The writing that I did about divorce predated my own divorce, and I don't think that my life was imitating art in any way. Did you have to put a dog down? No, I didn't. My dog is still alive. Yeah, I had trouble with the end of the book because in 2007, my dog, who God knows how old that animal was, but I had her for over 15 years. She might have been 20. I don't know. I had to put her down. My reaction was similar to what occurs in the book, throughout the book, Mm. which I found interesting. Meaning you didn't want to acknowledge when the moment had arrived, or? I did not acknowledge. My nephew was visiting me at the time and said, today is the day, and I said, but she's still eating. Yeah, yeah. It's an argument that Jacob actually has with his kids. 
like a, a sort of basic quality of life argument, which sometimes is about the family dog and sometimes is about the family patriarch, their grandfather. The story, the backstory, the Israeli war, it seems you were creating that backstory separately so that you could fit it in. But one thing you did do, and you did it actually throughout the book, is at various odd times, and I remember the first time raising my eyebrows a little, for one sentence, you move ahead several years and then you go back. What were you doing there? I wanted to drain the book of suspense largely because I just think it's not as rich. It's distracting. I mean, it is a pleasure, but it's not as deep a pleasure as, you know, being alongside the characters, not in the sense of wanting to know what will happen next, but seeing why people do the things that they do. You know, if the conclusions are known in advance, or the, rather the destinations are known in advance, known in advance, then it's the, the process that captures our, the reader's imagination and empathy. I do that a lot in this book. You do it at a certain point where you tell the entire story of the Israeli war before we find out how this family dealt with those with that era. Mm-hmm. Although there are then you know there are some there's some information that's withheld. Like oh, yeah. I, I don't talk about whether Jacob goes to fight or not until the very final pages of the book. You also don't tell what happens to, in Israel, the aftermath until the very pages of the book. Right. Too. Right. Yeah by doing that it means that we know that the divorce is going to happen when they're still seemingly happy married yeah <laughs> yeah you know that was actually i didn't always know that i was going to do it that way it was a decision i made i moved material around um when i was in the editing process and it, i had a lot of conversations about that decision with my editor and what what basically what what are the relative values in this book not there there are no relative values in any objective sense but in this book the relative values of suspense and um, like a, a, a different kind of investment in the emotional process rather than the dramatic process. That's, that's really what it is. It's the relative values of the dramatic process and the emotional process. This book in certain ways has more in common with eating animals even than it does with my two previous novels and that is a very close examination of how something happens. It's a big book in the sense of the size, word count, but in another way it's a smaller book you know, that my first two books were sort of about large gestures and big images and big voices and big style. And this one is, is much more patient with an examination of how, how something happens. A couple of quick questions. You were taught by Joyce Carol Oates. Did she teach you anything which just ingrained itself in all of your work? Not on the level of craft, but she taught me an, an enormous amount about what it means to be a writer. Um, and probably the most important lesson was you're going to be constantly running out of energy. Like nothing requires as much energy as writing. So think about what your sources of energy are, how you can f- generate more of it, and you know how to resist the temptation to stop. Those two first two books both became films. Are you satisfied with them? Well, I'm very satisfied in the sense that they brought lots of readers to the books. That may be about as far as my relationship with them goes. I wasn't involved in the making of them. I saw each of them once. I was just really glad they were made because they brought, you know, the you know the scale of like film dwarfs the scale of literature in America. Yeah. And so, when they were adapted, suddenly the book had multiples of the numbers of readers that had they had before. It kind of freak you out a little bit that suddenly you were more famous. They didn't make me more 
famous. You don't but think? Authors aren't famous. I mean, when we talk <laughs> about fame, we mean like when you walk down the street, people want to take pictures of you. You know, okay. there's there's not an author in America that can't walk down the street in complete and total anonymity. Stephen King might, but he's not many others. I think Stephen King could walk down the street in Manhattan and not really? be bothered at all. Are you finally working on uh, Escape from Children's Hospital now that Here I Am has been published? I'm talking to you now that Here I Am has been published. <laughs> That's true not only of the, this present moment, but it's true of this month. And you know, it's it's a process sending a book into the world, and it is somewhat time-consuming, but far more so, it's like psychology-consuming. When I am finished with that, then I will go back to things that I've started, go back to ideas that I've had, and see what moves me. Any way that you were going to take, other than, you know, a little bit of parts of uh, your TV show, any way all of that will find its way into print somehow? The TV show? Yeah. I doubt it. I mean, it's possible that I will borrow, you know, moments, conversations, lines that I really like. There are a couple of scenes that I really like that I regret Regret. I mean, I'm as proud of them as I am of any writing I've done. I'm more proud of some of them than any other writing I've done. But it has to have a place, you know. Writing requires a context. So we'll see. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was conducted. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>